what you saw tonight was President Trump, I think, and with one hand reaching out his hand to Democrats, and with the other hand uh, holding up a fist. And this is almost the conundrum of Donald Trump. That room last night was grossly divided. I've never seen Nancy Pelosi's face uh, like that. She seems to kind of embody the bitterness that belongs in the Democrat Party right now. And I wish he talked about sanctions on the Russians. He was selling sweet-tasting candy with poison in it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who hates sharks, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Last night, the president gave his first State of the Union address. And in case you missed it, Trump called for burning more coal, building more nuclear weapons, and sending more terrorists to Guantanamo. He took credit for economic growth, for the low unemployment rate, and for the soaring stock market. He neglected to address Russian interference in our elections or his ongoing interference in the special counsel's investigation. It was a long speech an hour and 20 minutes. And predictably, it was a highly exploitative one. Trump filled the gallery with victims. He had two sets of parents of girls murdered by immigrants from Central America who were members of the MS-13 gang. He had the parents of the young American student, Otto Warmbier, who died at the hands of the North Korean regime. He also had a North Korean defector, an amputee, who waved the crutches he used to escape the country. The suffering of these people is very real, but using that suffering to taunt political opponents and to justify inhumane and reckless policies is the definition of political demagoguery. But that wasn't even the worst of it. You might have missed the most sinister part of Trump's speech. My keen-eyed colleague Yasha Monk caught it on Twitter and then wrote it up in Slate. It was when Trump called on Congress to empower every cabinet secretary with the authority to reward good workers and to remove federal employees who undermine the public trust or fail the American people. As Monk points out, this is a straightforward demand for authoritarian power to bring an end to the traditions of political independence we have at the IRS, the FBI, and agencies that deal in scientific fact, like the EPA and FDA. Trump wants to be able to say you're fired to anybody who works for the federal government for any reason. He'd like to start by sacking Robert Mueller, proceed with scientists who recognize climate change, and carry on by demanding the prosecution of his political opponents. Congress and the courts aren't likely to end the rule of law by handing Trump that kind of authoritarian power. But that's not the point. The point is that in the middle of the year's biggest political speech, Donald Trump told the country he deserves to be a dictator. And his Republican allies, they didn't even blink. In a moment, I'll speak to the journalist Franklin Four about Paul Manafort's collapsing universe. But first, it was reported this week that President Trump got angry with FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe in the wake of the Comey firing, and that during a tense exchange, Trump told McCabe, ask your wife how it feels to be a loser. McCabe's wife lost a campaign for state office in Virginia. Many people were quick to deride this management style, but this recording shows how such techniques can actually have a very positive effect. Hey. Hey, welcome home. Thanks. What's the matter? Are you okay? Yeah, I just, I had the worst day at work. Oh no, what happened? That's a whole thing. I don't want to just, I, my boss is terrible and he just 
What happened? Tell I, me. He, we had an like altercation, and he said something that just is sitting very strange with me. Well, it, and weirdly, it involves you. Me? Well, what did he say? Well, he was mad about the report, and then he said to me, hey, why don't you... Never mind. It's just so, like... No, tell me. Why don't you what? What did he say? He said, why don't you go home and ask your wife what it feels like to be a loser? He said that? Yeah. So, like, I guess I'm supposed to just come in and be like, hey, what does it feel like to be a loser? <laughs> well, God, frankly, I'm, like, so relieved we can have this conversation because it it is not... It's not fun. It is not fun being a loser. And I've never wanted to bring it up because then I'm like, if you didn't already know I was a loser, then you're going to be like, oh my God, you're a loser. So I've just been kind of like keeping this to myself, but like, I would love to have a conversation about this. It's, it's horrible. It's really horrible. Gosh, I, you saying that and just seeing how bad it makes you feel to be a loser makes me want to just like... Go back to work tomorrow and try so hard and just do a good job at everything I yes, do. Yes, please do that. Please, because we cannot have two losers in this marriage. I mean, I can't be a loser and you be a loser. That yeah. would be so depressing You're to me. You're right. I can't even look at myself in the mirror. So what happens if I can't look at myself and then you come home and I can't even look at you? Like, where am I supposed to look? The wall? No, we cannot do this. You have to go back in there and you have to win. You have to be the best you can be. You're right. Because I'm the loser in this I'm marriage. I'm so motivated I'm now. the loser, okay? I realize what he was doing. He was trying to... Honestly, I'm, I'm going to go into the office and do a little work right now. I like it. And please, please, when you see him, tell him I said thank you I will. so much. Yeah, of course. How It Feels to Be a Loser was written and performed by Steve Waltine and Kate James. Frank Four is joining me from Slate's Washington studio. Frank is a national correspondent for The Atlantic. He writes for Slate. He is the author of a terrific book about Internet called World Without Mind. And his cover story in the March issue of The Atlantic is called The Plot Against America. It's about the history of Paul Manafort. Frank, thanks for joining me on the show. Great to be back. Frank, I think people know that Paul Manafort is one of four people who's been charged by the special prosecutor, Bob Mueller, in connection with the Trump-Russia investigation. He's currently out on bail. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, confined to house arrest, if I remember correctly. And he's charged with money laundering and some associated crimes. But before we get into all the current stuff, I want to do what your piece does, which is talk about his history a little bit. Where did Paul Manafort come from? How did he end up being such a pivotal figure in Republican politics? So Paul Manafort began his career as a political consultant. He was a guy who helped other people get elected. And he worked on the Ford campaign in 1976 and then worked on the Reagan campaign in 1980. And he emerged from the Reagan campaign as a real hotshot. And so he opened... Um, a firm, a political consulting firm up in, in Washington, D.C. And it was a really fortuitous moment for him because there were all these businesses, all these corporations that looked at the Reagan administration and they saw this huge opportunity to roll back the regulatory state, to cut taxes, to do all these things that would improve their bottom line. And so Manafort just started getting calls uh, from businesses asking to lobby. And so he 
set up a lobbying firm on top of his political consulting firm. Now, over the course of his career, Paul Manafort is this brash guy who looks to see what's the acceptable norm at any given moment, and then he leaps forward and does the thing that's just beyond that, um, the audacious thing that pushes the, the boundaries of moral behavior. And that's what he did over the course of his career as a lobbyist. Um, so, so, Frank, yeah, I mean, I wrote about this firm, Black Manafort Stone and Atwater. As a it classic. Was then. Yes, it was one of the first pieces I did in journalism. And I had two conclusions. And I think this was in 1985, I should say, when I was 21 years old or 22 years old. But one of them was that it was an innovation in sleaziness to be political consultants and lobbyists. And this is a point you make in the piece. They were getting these people elected and then these candidates who were beholden to them once they were in the House or Senate could do them favors. But my other conclusion, which may well have been totally wrong and which I don't think you support, is that they were essentially swindlers. They were getting these people who were very naive about Washington, these African dictators, these Asian dictators, and saying, we pull all the strings, we can get you what you want. And they were taking very high fees, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year from these people. And the more you looked at it, the more it looked like they were geniuses at client recruitment and management, but weren't really doing much for these dictators in Africa. You know, I think both are probably true. I think that there was an element of charlatanism to the way that they would put an audacious price tag on their services. But then there are enough instances where they were able to really get pretty monumental returns for their client where it seemed like it was worth it. I mean, one thing that should be said is that they were tightly tied into the Reagan administration in the 1980s. And so that helped them get a lot of business. So the Reagan administration steered the Philippines, Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos to the firm. And he steered other, uh, James Baker was a great, the Secretary of State was a great mentor to Paul Manafort. And he steered clients uh, in the firm's direction. But they definitely did get some results. And so the classic example of this is that they worked for this, uh, this rebel army in Angola, UNITA, that was run by this real thug, Jonas Savimbi. And Savimbi was a charlatan himself. He was a Maoist who had been trained by the Chinese, who turned anti-communist when that suited him. And Savimbi was getting arms from Washington. And he hired Manafort and the firm in order to increase the flow of arms. And Manafort was incredibly effective. And one of the reasons that he was effective is that he took this guy who probably didn't care about any single idea, who'd committed all sorts of horrible atrocities, who ran sex trafficking, who killed women and children. You're talking um, about who, a real war criminal. I mean, I remember when he came to Washington and was feted in the, during the Reagan administration. It was shocking even then. Yeah, and, and that firm had a lot to do with that fetting, um, turning this guy into a latter-day Thomas Jefferson. And they kept the arms flowing so much so that there was real momentum for peace talks in Angola. But the flow of arms that these guys were able to gin up and that they kept pushing for actually was responsible for elongating the civil war. And ultimately, in the view of many, um, including former Senator uh, Bill Bradley, was responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths, ultimately. Needless deaths. What do you think Manafort was trying to accomplish? He seems to just really like money a lot. Was he, as opposed to being politically powerful or running a White House or being at the center of things, was he just trying to amass as large a fortune as he possibly could? I'm not even sure it was about money per se. I mean, he he came from 
the town of New Britain, Connecticut, where his father had been mayor. And New Britain was this really insular place, very, very working class. And he almost had a chip on his shoulder. And what he was looking for wasn't so much money, but the trappings of status and power, the good feelings that come with that. And so he was just a conspicuous consumer. He And we see this in the Mueller indictment, ultimately, where he spent a million bucks on a tailor in Beverly Hills and that he's, you know, he's got this mania for acquiring property. And on, the million dollars on the tailor, I mean, I don't know how many suits you can get or how much a suit can cost, but, I, but my assumption was that that was part of the money laundering accusation. Oh, it is. I mean, it is. He didn't spend it, just to be clear, he didn't spend a million dollars on shirts and ties. We don't know. He's, a, <laughs> he's He likes the bling. I mean, in terms of his cars, in terms of his suits. And now I mean, he gets funny. to wear them around his house. Yeah, right. It's Because it, one of the things that I describe in the piece is that, you know, he, he came to Washington, which is a f- kind of in the 1980s was kind of still a bit of a fusty boarding school establishment, you know, waspy establishment type of place. And he came in and he was blingy by the standards of Washington in that era. Uh, He stood out just because he would amass that kind of property and he liked the flashy cars. But this sort of class dimension here, right? I mean, you have Manafort, this sort of arriviste, you know, kind of flashy guy supporting Donald Trump against Jeb Bush and other figures in the Republican establishment who epitomize that that old world gentility. (laughs) Right. Well, and that's certainly how he marketed himself to Donald Trump. He wrote Trump a memo at the beginning of uh, uh, the beginning of the campaign telling Trump that, you know, despite his career as a lobbyist, he'd he'd really removed himself from Washington. He'd spent all this time working in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, and he was actually an outsider now. And so he knew perfectly how to run an outsider campaign. And so that falls into the category of what you described earlier, this kind of this, the charlatanism, the shysterism, where he's able to pitch himself perfectly to Donald Trump, even though it's a completely disingenuous pitch. But it shows the way in which Manafort was successful because he was able to read the mind of potential clients and tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. He said, I've been working for this Ukrainian oligarch who's just been ousted in a revolution after being responsible for the deaths of 100 people (laughs) and stealing billions of dollars. And Trump (laughs) said, that's my guy. (laughs) Right? I mean, is that basically what happened? This was his main, I mean, Ukraine was his main arena of activity and working for victory. Tell, explain a little bit about who Viktor Yanukovych was and how Manafort ended up being his Svengali. Okay. So Ukraine is the front line of confrontation between East and West. It's, it's been, it was part of the former Soviet Union. Russia has always seen it as its backyard or an extension of Russia to a certain extent and felt like it's had prerogative over the country. And so it's always been deeply involved in Ukrainian politics. And in 2004, this guy, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, Yanukovych ran for president of Ukraine. And Yanukovych came from this town and the, the heavily Russian part of Russian speaking part of Ukraine. And he was a gangster. He'd been arrested. He'd served time in prison. And he was supported by other gangsters, people who had won their fortunes in very, very bloody struggles to take over the old resources of the Soviet state. And so this clique of gangsters ran this other gangster, Viktor Yanukovych, to be president of Ukraine. 
and he won the election. But he after poisoning his opponent, right? Wasn't that the dioxin poisoning? It, it was. It was. And so what I was going to say was he won it in a very obviously rigged election where he arguably poisoned his uh, his political opponent. And there was a revolution to try to prevent him from taking over power, the Orange Revolution. Mm. And the Orange Revolution was successful. And Yanukovych became this uh, toxic political figure who had to spend a time in exile. And that's when he met up with Paul Manafort. And so what Manafort did was he took this toxic character and his cadre of former gangsters, and he made them a plausible force in Ukrainian politics. And it was an incredibly unlikely political comeback that he was able to engineer. And he became very, very close to Yanukovych, who eventually became president of Ukraine in 2010. And Manafort was the guy behind the guy. And there are very, very few Americans who've managed to amass that kind of power in another country. So he was set up over there. Manafort had an office in Ukraine. He's Mm -hmm. the close advisor of this president who's assembling this uh, palace menagerie of peacocks and whatever (laughs) other kind of other animals. And he's getting above or below the table a huge amount of money. It's all below. It's all. It's all below the table. I mean, first of all, because it's just you. You're you're, the people who were paying him were oligarchs who couldn't really account for their own money in an honest sort of way. And so what would happen is Manafort would tell Yanukovych, hey, I've just done all this work for you. You need to pay me $5 million. And so one oligarch would take the hat and he'd pass it around to the other oligarchs and say, you all got to chip in a million bucks. And that the, the oligarch who was passing around the hat would take his own cut of this. But I mean, this was money that you, this was dirty money that you couldn't possibly ever make clean, which was part of Manafort's ultimate problem was that he had to keep this dirty money offshore because there was no way that he could explain it to U.S. authorities. And furthermore, he probably didn't want to pay taxes on it. And so eventually this becomes a big problem for Manafort because Viktor Yanukovych, there's a second revolution in Ukraine in 2014 where Viktor Yanukovych is swept from power and he has to go into exile in Moscow. And so... The FBI starts looking into money associated with Viktor Yanukovych and the oligarchs connected to Viktor Yanukovych, and they come and they interview Paul Manafort. Manafort comes into their offices, uh, and at that point, Manafort realizes that all this money that he has trapped offshore, all this dirty money that he's found kind of circuitous ways to bring back to the United States, suddenly he's not able to do that anymore because he knows he could get caught if he does it again. So after this happens, so Yanukovych loses the next election. Manafort is out. He's made a huge amount of money, but it's in Cyprus or wherever. He can't easily get it back. And his life starts falling apart, it seems. And you somehow got access to these amazing text messages among the members of his family and his daughters. And I want to ask, I had seen references to those, but I had not seen them described and quoted in such detail. And I wanted to ask you how you got them and also a little bit about the ethics, if you you thought there were any issues of quoting these private messages from his daughters. So there was a a group of uh, a Ukrainian hacktivist collective. (laughs) <laughs> that uh, broke that somehow sound like bro- sound like good people. So. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they're 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 incredible citizens <laughs> that purloined this material, and it was presented to the press last February, where with with certain snippets that had been highlighted in order to 
advanced the agenda of the hacktivists. And there was a quote that they had um, basically served on a silver platter to political journalists about where one of the daughters is complaining to the other daughter that their father's, their father's money and this lavish lifestyle that they'd been enjoying was, was earned on the basis of blood money. I mean, that was like a great novel. These daughters realized that their their family wealth comes from from blood money and corruption. I mean, I was my initial reaction was to be very sympathetic to them. That's a moment of self awareness that does make one sympathetic to them. You know, in the beginning, you mentioned that I'd written this book, uh, "World Without Mind," which is about the power of big tech companies and privacy is a theme in the book, and so. When presented with these text messages, which had, which had been encrypted and posted on the dark web, I wrestled with what to do about them because I don't really want to live in a world where cell phones of, of uh, tangential characters and political scandals get hacked and that their information gets weaponized. On the other hand, I'm a journalist who's writing about a pretty big scandal, and I'm trying to create a psychological portrait of this man who is at the heart of the scandal. And so I think that there is pretty clear public purpose that's that's served by turning over some of these private matters. But I I tried to be very, very careful about what I used from the text messages that, that I tried not to take information that would be gratuitously damaging to people who are not at the heart of the scandal. Purely personal about people who aren't Paul Manafort. I think you dealt with it very uh, fairly, Frank. I just wanted to. I just think that issue is behind a lot of this kind of reporting these days, and people don't oh, it usually is. surface it. But I, but I, but I want to get into what you learned from these text messages because it is a fascinating portrait. What was happening to Paul Manafort at the time, or just around the time that he was coming on to Donald Trump? Right. So his life had collapsed. I mean, that that was the stunning revelation. I think that that came out of reading the text messages that. You know, we've described the way in which he professionally collapsed. So he had this one client. His whole business had been reduced to Viktor Yanukovych. And so when Yanukovych was swept for power, Manafort took this huge tumble that he'd been this incredibly powerful guy in this country. And suddenly he was without power. He was without a client. And so he needed to go scrambling for business for the first time in a very, very long time. And he wasn't terribly successful in drumming up new business. And that also meant that he was financially in trouble. And so we've described the way in which his money was parked in Cyprus and he couldn't access it. And so he didn't have cash flowing in. And so he went and he took out a series of very aggressive and, and in some instances actually fraudulent loans against his properties in order to finance his very expensive lifestyle. But he wasn't able to finance it all. And so in these text messages, there's a very there's some pretty poignant exchanges where Andrea, his daughter, is planning her wedding and Manafort is suddenly getting extremely cheap. And there's one moment where they're planning wedding weekend kickoff dinner and Manafort suddenly insists that they serve hot dogs on paper plates. Hey, it'll be and, fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and he, he eliminates the line item for ice. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need a DJ. You've got an iPhone. The, um, but it, it, it's an amazing story. I mean, at, at this point, you know, he's supporting, you say this in the piece, a very expensive mistress he can't afford anymore. Yes. He's sort of, he's sort of on the lam. He has no work. He's broke. His wife is angry at him. His daughters are saying we're living on blood money. 
I mean, oh, his whole oh, world oh, oh, is collapsing. Oh, 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 and by the way, he did business with a Russian oligarch called Oleg Deripaska, <laughs> who who has a reputation for connections to organized crime. Who can't enter the, the country because who, the Justice Department thinks he killed people. Yeah, and he thinks that Manafort stole well over $20 million from him, and he wants his money back. And oh, by the way. <laughs> I've, so, seen the, I've seen this movie. It, was, it does not end well for that character. No. No. And, and Manafort stops returning his phone calls, <laughs> which is always a great way to deal with somebody who you owe $25 million. Um, and takes up residence in a motel by the airport in, uh, in Canton, <laughs> Ohio, right? Yeah. Um, and so at that moment, um, Manafort actually has what his, his daughter describes as a pretty massive emotional breakdown. And he ends up largely at his family's behest and uh, settling into a clinic in Arizona to kind of pull his life back together. And so that's what happens on the eve of the Trump campaign. And he watches then Trump begin his, his, his unlikely ascent. And he starts, uh, he starts talking to some of his old friends to see if there's not a way that he can get into the Trump campaign because he needs the Trump campaign. To be the guy next to Trump would be a, a great way to revive his business, but it's also a way to revive his sense of flagging self-esteem, to win back the admiration of his family, and and also a way ultimately that I think he thinks he can help repair his relationship with Oleg Deripaska, the oligarch who is chasing him for the money. Right. And he sends Deripaska message that basically, hey, I'm working for Trump now. Can we can we get straight? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He every time there's a clipping about him in the news, he's he's passing it along to Deripaska and he tells uh, one of his old deputies, who's the the middleman uh, with Deripaska, and he says, is there any way we could use this to, quote unquote, get whole with with Deripaska? And he offers to set up a private briefing for Deripaska with, uh, I mean, it seems like with with Trump. So just to get to the bottom line here a little more quickly, because this whole scenario of what happened during the campaign, there are a number of Russian collusion scenarios involving different people, Carter Page, Michael Flynn, Papadopoulos, and Manafort himself. He is integral to some of the scenarios, not to all of them. Correct. And the ones he is central to are the ones that were early in the campaign for the most part because he got fired in the summer. But it was after the Trump Tower meeting, which he was present at. So what do you think Manafort might know? And why is he apparently holding out on Mueller? Why isn't he singing about Trump? So I think what – as with so much of this scandal, I think it's best to be humble about all the things that we we don't know. And so – in the case of Manafort, what we see is that he's somebody who's incredibly well connected to in Russia and in, in, in Ukraine. We see that he's somebody who's basically willing to do whatever it takes to enrich himself and to protect his own self-interest, even if it comes at somebody else's expense, or in this case, even if it were to come maybe at the campaign's expense. And so we, we see that as soon as he gets to the campaign, he's trying to leverage his power in the campaign in order to try to get cl- to, to repair his relationship with this Russian oligarch. Now, all of this is just highly suggestive. And we don't know if the oligarch ever responded to Manafort's messages. The oligarch denies having responded to any of his messages. And so we don't know where it all leads. And it may be that Manafort 
doesn't have anything about whatever the broader conspiracy is. But it may also be that Manafort understands the mind of Donald Trump much better than anybody else and that he's willing to endure some short-term pain in, um, in his dealings with these, uh, these prosecutors holding out for the possibility that maybe he'll get a presidential pardon or that the whole investigation will get scuppered along the way. I don't actually have any reporting on this. Uh, and so I can only speculate. And it is inevitable speculation, but it may be that, as you say, he doesn't really have anything on Trump, so he has nothing to bargain with with Mueller. It may also be that he's more afraid of other people, possibly Trump, possibly Deripaska, who knows, than he is afraid of Mueller. And it's also possible that, as you suggested at the end, he's saying, you know, Mueller could get fired, this whole thing could blow up, he could, Trump could pardon him, that, you know, he may, he may elude capture in the end. What, yeah. do you think, what do you think's going through his head right now? I mean, one curious coda to this all is that on the day that my piece um, got shipped to the printer— because that's what happens with the Atlantic cover story. There's this, <laughs> this, this weird interim period where the piece leaves your hands and it's not immediately posted to the web. It gets it gets sent off to um, a factory. Um, yeah, I gave that up in 1996 when I came to Slate. <laughs> um, so Deripaska actually just sued Manafort in New York, asking to get his money back much more officially and forcefully. I mean, the timing is pretty, pretty curious that this guy's on the ropes um, and Deripaska comes and he's like, he's like, this time you're going to give me back my money. Um, not that it's clear where Manafort would have that money at this yeah, point. Yeah, reading your story, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's still got some stash somewhere, but I bet Mueller's found it and I doubt Deripaska's going to get it. Yeah, but it's a, it's, or maybe it's a message. Um, so, I mean, I think that it, 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 you see Manafort um, kind of just desperately trying to cling to his reputation. Um, there was this moment where Mueller busted Manafort for violating a gag rule because he'd been working to try to get an op-ed published in a Kiev newspaper. That was go- <laughs> He was ghostwriting it for a Ukrainian, kind of a second-tier Ukrainian politician. And just kind of the patheticness of that all. And this, there's this ultimate irony, which is that Manafort, who is a guy who is so good at image making and so good at, at taking people who have the lowest reputation and boosting their reputation, really has been completely unsuccessful at doing that for himself. And he can't see it's over. Frank, this is an amazing story. I mean, people always say it reads like a novel, but you have the material for a great novel about Washington corruption here. Thank you. I've been speaking to Frank Four. His cover story in the March issue of The Atlantic is The Plot Against America. It's a biography of Paul Manafort. Frank, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks, Jake. That's it for today's show. Virginia Heffernan will be back tomorrow to talk about impeachment with an impeachment defense lawyer who's represented Republicans in several states. His name is Ross Garber. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. Trumpcast was produced today by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch, How It Feels to Be a Loser, was written and performed by Steve Waltine and Kate James. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.